In October 2019, a team of visually impaired and sighted artists and collaborators took journeys together into the city of Bristol with the aim of uncovering the usually unheard stories of visually impaired citizens and returning these stories to the heart of the city narrative. The journeys were recorded and revealed such a treasure trove of insights and shared experiences that the City of Threads podcast was born. Each episode is hosted by core members of that team and features the journeys they took. So join us on an immersive audio journey into the City of Threads. Welcome to Gorilla on a Minimoto. And it is such a contrast for me when I, when I look around. It's like capturing one little thing at a time. I, I'm one of those people with a cane. I, I class myself as a whacker, but ching, bang, hit the bin, bang, hit the, hit the bus stop, bang, you know. Just drunk you on the way home, eh? <laughs> you finished your milkshake? I have, nearly. It's very nice. <laughs> it's good, right? It's very <laughs> so I just warn you, she can go into meltdown if she's frightened by noise. Um, which means she just has an instant poo on the pavement. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the electronic violinist. Yeah. I love her. Yeah. The rustling of the leaves and different sounds and even smells. That to me is music. Now, just up above that, you can see some, some balconies and, and windows. And that belongs to Bristol Youth Foyer, which is a place for young people 18 to 25 who are homeless. And about 15 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, my son had a room there. And more or less up above the, the pizza sign is the balcony to the room that he used to stay in okay. and I'd gone to visit him one day and I, I was standing out on that little balcony and he was making an internal phone call to the maintenance team to report something that had gone wrong so I was standing out there by myself and all of a sudden from Baldwin Street there came a gorilla on a mini moto who came speeding out of Baldwin Street across here and then disappeared across the park. And I was absolutely stunned. <laughs> and my son walked into the room and he looked at me and he said, what's, what's wrong? So I said to him, I've just seen a gorilla on a mini moto. He said, oh, right. Well, I've reported that repair. <laughs> So clearly, that is a normal thing to be going on around this area on a daily basis. <laughs> that was Nikki Durston and her travelling companion Rosa on their journey into the city as part of our City of Threads project. And he's Jeff Daniels, and we are your co-hosts for this episode called Gorilla on a Minimoto. You'll be following the journeys that Nikki and I took through Bristol. And encountering a few others along the way. Right, let's get started. First up, it's Nikki. Thank you. So who's, who's that then? Rosie. 
process. Rose, she just popped down for a second. That was my fault because I was torturing her by smoking as I was walking back. <laughs> Nikki and her travelling companion Rosa are at Arnolfini. Rosa works at Arnolfini. Earlier in the week, she'd been given some sighted guiding training with Nikki. But today, they are about to set off on their journey into the city. And we've got quite a bright day today. We have we? got a break. Right, okay. So I will be wearing sunglasses okay. today. Nikki lets Rosa know what her specific guiding requirements are. I use a long cane when I'm out by myself. I tend to, if I'm being guided, I do tend to lift that up off of the ground. Okay. Because... I don't think it's very easy for two people to synchronise their stride right. and their steps. Yeah. And I always worry that I'm going to trip my guide. So I like to hold on to my guide's right arm. Uh-huh. I keep my cane in my right arm. And I, I kind of hold it in front of me okay. and just to the side. And the kinds of obstacles that she wants Rosa to keep an eye out for. The things that I, I need to be told about is... Anything that's coming out into the path, mm-hmm. um, bins, A-boards, mm-hmm. uh, hanging baskets or branches that may be yeah. lower down, um, and definitely small children mm-hmm. and dogs that are trying to are they the worst? walk across in front. I am so scared that I'm going to really? knock a child over, yes. Um, and sometimes members of the public that can see that you're walking along and swinging a cane and they think, oh, I'll just nip across in yeah. front of that person. I've had people jump over the cane. <gasps> and oh, wow. Prepped and ready for anything, Rosa and Nikki set off. So we've just stepped outside of the Arnolfini and already it's a sensory delight. There's lots of people around, so you've got the bustle of that and, and the flute music that I can hear... It always distracts me when I when I walk along this way. It's really lovely to listen to it. Nikki and Rosa head off, down the cobbled street, under the trees that line the riverfront, past Perro's Bridge that connects one side of the harbour with the other, avoiding the worst of the route-disturbed pavements, then on, past the shared space of the city centre, to Nikki's first stopping point. I'll now perform the daring feat of walking down an urban street, where lurks uneven paving stone and rampant hedges overgrown. Recycle boxes hide in dark, a line of cars on pavement parked, a silent cyclist overtakes, no lights, no bell, no thought, no brakes. Then cautiously I cross the place innocuously called shared space. No clues encountered by my cane, a wilderness, a VI's bane. Nikki's been writing poems since she was a little girl. I've always enjoyed writing. I learned to read really early. I, I enjoyed it so much that it was something that I did all the time by myself and with my mother. And because I enjoyed the stories, I started to write my own even when I was still in primary school. And about a year ago... My dad passed me a, a very crumpled and yellowed piece of paper with a poem on it that I'd written when I was nine years old. And I couldn't believe that he still had it after all this time. And when at last I reached the end, down darkened steps I must descend. Their number vital to recall, 
reducing risk of frightening fall. She lost interest a bit when she became a teenager. I didn't have a great deal of time for poetry during my teens. I, I, you know, teenagers do different things. But I did write some poems that were mainly tongue-in-cheek things about my friends. And it, it was just a bit of gentle teasing. But she came back to it as an adult. And now... I feel as if they write themselves. It will be an issue or a subject which keeps recurring. It's it's something that keeps coming up. And so I've, I've had time to think about these things. And then suddenly a, a poem will emerge from that. Safe once again and back in light. Initially it seems too bright. And then a private celebration. I have reached my destination. Nikki and Rosa arrive at Nikki's first stop, the Galleries, a busy shopping mall situated in the Broadmead Shopping Centre. And this is my place of sensory delight. The, the smells in this place are so varied. When, you, when we came in through the top entrance, we could smell the, the pasties um, and the, all the bakery things. And then as you move down... Depending on which shops you're walking past, you might be smelling perfumes or walking past the food court, there's all the all the lovely foodie smells. And then downstairs there was a like a posh coffee shop where you could really smell oh, yeah. the coffee down there. And so yeah, this is a, a place of smells. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a little girl, well actually up until I was in my early twenties. This wasn't here. Okay. It was a, a place called Fairfax House, which was kind of like a, a, a sort of department store. I remember this place being built 1989, 1990, okay. uh, and it was different because rather than it being one big department store, it was, as it is now, lots of individual shops and it was quite exciting and it was all big and spacious and it was it was a very bustling place mm. to be and so that top entrance that we walked in where i, I showed you the bridge yeah. looking over that corridor that we now walk through it was windows from floor to ceiling and as a child it was the most terrifying <laughs> walk ever when i look at the distance across now it's not really that far, but as a small child, that, that felt like yeah. this really long, dangerous, scary place to walk across. With the benefit of hindsight, Nikki can look back now and pinpoint moments that were clues to her sight being different. As a teenager... And we had green spaces around us, and... It would get dark quite early in the winter, as it does, and we'd sometimes take a shortcut home across a field. And all my friends would just stride out across this field, but to me it was it was like being in a coal cellar or something. I could not see anything at all. And I used to get quite cross that everybody else was being so reckless and striding out across this dangerous and unsure space. And even younger, in primary school, I remember being out in the playground in uh, primary school and I can hear a helicopter and all of the other children are jumping up and down and pointing to the helicopter and I couldn't find it in the sky. I looked and looked and looked and I, I couldn't find it. But I didn't 
find that unusual because that was how things were for me. And I never talked about it to anybody. Again, it was just a normal thing and it didn't occur to me that that was a problem. Nikki was in her 30s when a routine eye appointment threw up some issues and she was advised to go to the GP to get a referral to the eye hospital. And I've heard this story in a lot of people that started to lose their sight later in life when you're already an adult. You're kind of in some sort of denial because you've been coping up until that point and so therefore in your head you can see. And so I didn't act on it. Ten years went by and I hadn't acted on it at all. Back in the galleries, Nikki and her travelling companion Rosa. And when my daughter was a little girl, there were loads of places in here that she liked to shop. Claire's accessories, I think, is still on the ground floor. And as a little girl, that you know, that that's a sort of Aladdin's cave, isn't it? So I think it was this place that gave her her love of shopping. Nikki and Rosa make their way out of the galleries to Nikki's second stopping point. So this is on the corner of Castle Park and Bristol Bridge. The place where Nikki saw the gorilla on a mini moto from the balcony of her son's rooms. When Nikki told me that story, it just brought a memory back to me when I was crossing Bedminster Bridge and right past me, a gorilla on a mini moto. Same place, the same time, in Bristol. And it's where our travellers now pause, looking out over the river, so that Nikki can show Rosa how to see what she sees. But before they do that, we need to know that ten years after first being told she needed to go to the GP for a referral, Nikki finally went to the eye hospital and was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa, or RP, which, amongst other things, affects Nikki's peripheral vision. So, while she has very good central vision, she can't see anything at all that's happening around the edges. Um, We're facing the river, just looking over the railings. And if you, Rosa, if you cup your hands around your eyes, so now you've blocked out your peripheral, the ferry boat's just about to come past. So if you look at that, and you can can see that, but but nothing else. And then as it passes by, you're now just looking at the water with all the ripples coming across it. And that is like... That's all you can focus on. But then if you turn your head to the right and look up, you've got all that traffic coming past and all that busyness going on across the bridge. And it is such a contrast for me when I when I look around, because I have to turn my head to see these different views. But it's like capturing one little thing at a time. Feeling the intoxicating heartbeat of the forest with its cicadas, frogs and beating rain like standing in a full-on shower separated only by insect screen and slats of window blinds. One of the reasons I write is um, to capture something for myself. So, for example, when I'd been out in Australia and I just so loved it, the only way I could think of keeping that memory was to actually write it. That's Claire, a fellow journey taker. Nikki and Claire share a common thread of writing and are having a conversation over Zoom about why and how they write some months after their city journeys took place. 
this theme will keep recurring and then suddenly I'm, I'm sitting down and I'm, I'm writing a poem. So it, it always astonishes me when I write something that, that people have really enjoyed and that they, you know, come to me afterwards and said, wow, you know, I, I really like that. Well, that's, that's worth such a lot, Nikki. Yes. Uh, I mean, I just happened to fall into this really and I, I found it was something I really enjoyed doing and I think... For me, I'll have um, some kind of weird idea hatching in my head for perhaps quite a long time, and then I'll have to write it down. Mm. So it sounds a bit similar. Nikki asked Claire about her background. I'm proud of being born in Essex. My parents were both Londoners. I worked as an occupational therapist for many years and had loads of inoculations for all sorts of things. But then one particular vaccine of that particular batch was not good for me. And um, I had a bad reaction. Both my optic nerves were affected. So my life completely changed over one weekend in January 2010. Claire is the only traveller in our City of Threads who isn't a Bristol resident. On the day she joined our group to take a city journey, she had travelled in from her home in Gloucestershire with her guide dog, Sparkle. And I've got a guide dog. This is Sparkle at my feet. I hope she's going to behave. <laughs> she began by telling Esther, her travelling companion for the day, about Sparkle and her quirks. The dog is quite uh, greedy and looking out for stuff on the pavement. She's not as good a guide dog as she might be. And if the dog needs to have a wee, she'll, she'll indicate that. Okay. Um, so, and, so we might find a green space outside would be quite good. Okay. Because um, that's what she'd prefer, and I'm sure we'll find somewhere. Possibly a few more quirks than Esther had bargained for. I just warn you, she can go into meltdown if she's frightened by noise, okay. um, which means she just has an instant poo on the pavement. You know? okay. Good to know. <laughs> yes. good to know. Is Sorry, it... things are very basic when you have a guide dog. Toilet training aside, travelling with a dog through the city is very different to travelling with a sighted guide. I do take notice of exactly how the dog is feeling. So you're like one unit, actually, although we might seem very <laughs> haphazard. You and your dog are one unit working together. For Claire, it is a useful opportunity to travel with her guide dog around a city she doesn't know well with someone like Esther, who does. Together, they discover some of the many green spaces in the centre of the city, brave the busy city centre shared space, which... Like most of our other travellers, Claire finds a challenging and scary place to be and end up at the Bristol Old Vic, which Claire has chosen as a stopping point, as it's where she meets with a writer's group. Whilst they're there... Hello. What's your name then? This is Sparkles. Sparkles. No, you're not really meant to talk to her. Ah, uh, sorry. <laughs> you're all right, thanks. I know you're not meant to pet them, so... No, brilliant. You're doing really well. <laughs> sorry. That's all right. Navigating with Sparkle is a working partnership. Every guide dog and prospective owner go through a whole training process to get to the stage where they are fine-tuned enough to work safely together. Any distraction can be potentially dangerous to owner or dog. Even so, many find it hard to resist. Back on Nikki and Claire's Zoom call. I was in our local M&S, which is a food shop, and some woman, I could see she's wearing a big hat. And she gave my dog something to eat um, and said something, I can't remember what, it, it was at the checkout. 
and I said, you know, how would you like it if, if I gave your child something to eat and you didn't know what it was? Yeah. Um, and then I think I had to go back for something else the next day. And the girl on the checkout said, I remember you. <laughs> you really told her. <laughs> but, you know, I was so shocked that people could think that the dog was in a way their responsibility. Claire's thinking is that better integration will lead to better understanding. Don't segregate people who have um, a visual impairment from the rest of society. And we're a bit apt to do that at the moment, like with elderly people, to say, oh, elderly people this way. And that just doesn't work because we're all one society. We, we want to get on. Just a few small changes would, would make a huge difference. Nikki and Claire found many threads of connection in their conversation not just their writing. They both love music and play some, although neither will admit to being any good. I wish I was a better musician. I try and play the piano. If, if I could do that, then that's what I would do. But I'm, I'm just not good enough. But when I, when I wrote about this time in Australia, I, I managed to get some recordings of birdsong in, in the early morning in Queensland. Oh, wow. That was the sound I was trying to get. That was the feeling that I had when I was with those particular people. That was the feeling of being on the beach then. And mm. I never want to lose it. And, and so that's really why I write. Purest musical notes, lyrebird and bobok. Harsh rooster cries and cacophony of kookaburras wakes me soon after dawn. And I laugh delightedly to myself at the sense of belonging. Back in the city journey, Nikki and Rosa have left Bristol Bridge and are just turning off a main road into a cobbled cul-de-sac. This is the Fleece. Uh, spent many a happy evening down here with my cousin. We're at the final stop on Nikki's journey. The Fleece is a music venue in an old Grade 2 listed warehouse that used to be a sheep trading market, hence the name. We've seen some amazing tribute bands here. Um, we've seen a few originals as well. We've seen Space. Wait, the band Space? Yes. Oh, wow. Seen, it was in, um, like, um, Female of the Species? Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we, we used to come here, and then we'd stay for the disco at the end, so yeah. you'd pull the students in then. <laughs> and they used to think it was great that these two old guys were in there, you know. Um, but I, I found myself one time, I was, I was at home, in the kitchen and I'm, I'm stirring two cups of coffee and I suddenly thought how did I get here it was just I suddenly found myself <laughs> making these coffees so I turned around and my cousin's there with this big happy smile on his face and I said cuz how did we get home and this smile just dropped off of his face and he said what's the last thing you remember and when I stopped to think about it, I said, nothing. I had gone completely, we had drunk so much. <laughs> and neither of us could remember anything. So we're looking for clues now. <laughs> so he's emptied his pockets out. And the pocket that he usually keeps his change in had nothing but ten pence pieces in. There were no other <laughs> coins whatsoever, just ten pence pieces. And he said to me, have you got your cane? 
So I went out and looked in the hallway where I usually mm. leave my cane. And yes, it was there okay. in the place where I usually... But it was upside down. <laughs> so we spent the whole week really worried, trying to figure out what had happened on this night. And we said, we're going to have to go back down and, and, and find out what happened. <laughs> so we've come around this corner here. And, and the doormen all turned around and said, Hey, you're back. <laughs> <laughs> And we said, Oh, we, we wondered whether there was anything we needed to apologise for. And um, our favourite guy, he's he turned around to my cousin and he said, Now, you were really entertaining, was I? And he said, Well, what about her? And he smiled at me, he said, You were great. And I thought, Oh my God, what does that mean? <laughs> I do have to just clarify here, Jeff. I don't always get as drunk as that. That is a very unusual night. So what happened at the end of the story? (laughs) Well, I didn't find out what it was that I'd done that was so great, but I did find out that my cousin had been pole dancing. Meanwhile, Nikki and Rosa have returned to Arnolfini, where the connection they forged on their journey results in uncovering a new understanding. After our journey, Rosa said that she was surprised to hear that visually impaired people go out and drink one too many. She thought we were all very sensible and sober. Well, not necessarily completely sensible or completely sober, but, like, perhaps more so than many of my close friends, I guess. (laughs) It quite surprised me when Rosa said that. Um, It wasn't something I was expecting because we know that we do things the same as everyone else does. It hadn't occurred to me that, you know, other people might think that we do things differently. We do live our lives the same as anybody else. We just, um, let's just say, we have to navigate it differently, that's all. Sight loss can be an isolating experience. It can take time to adjust and find the confidence to get out there. Having a support network makes all the difference. You finished your milkshake? I have, nearly. It's very nice. It's good, right? It's very more. (laughs) This is fellow City of Threads traveller Mark Gulwell and his journey companion Letty Clark on their city journey. One of my main roles when I came here was to create um, uh, events, meeting spaces for people with sight loss um, and find venues that are accessible for people to come to. Mark is the man to go to if you want to find out what's going on in Bristol. Mark is the reason that Nikki met Jeff, and Jeff is the reason that Nikki joined this project. And they, they'd said to me, this, this guy is working for Vision West of England. Now called Site Support West. You really need to get in contact with him if you want some activities to do in Bristol. He's the guy. I actually met Nikki. it wasn't in... Um... The pub socials, it was actually at a sports event, wasn't it? I met you, Nikki. They met at a VI cricket taster day, where Mark told Nikki... We do have a monthly social meeting at the Sportsman. And I remember that the first person that he introduced me to when I got there, Jeff, was you. Yes, it was, yes. Here's Mark, Nikki and Jeff talking about the socials Mark organises as part of his role at Site Support West and the importance of community. The social, for me, it's all about getting people together, building a community. Um, the, the amount of goodwill and knowledge and uh, friendliness you get from other people who are in a similar situation to you, it's not, 
it's not comparable to anything. You, you, if you haven't got that in life, it makes it very difficult to move on with sight loss. I enjoy the event as much as anybody else does, and I've met a lot of good people through through all of the social events I've run over the 12 or so years I've been doing them. It, you know, these things are, are great to build lifelong friendships. Building the community, as I say, that's, that to me is what it's all about, it's building that community. I'm quite looking forward to the, the next event that is being set up, Axe Throw-In. I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> What's that one? Axe Throw-In. Oh, Axe Throw-In. <laughs> well, I, I, I do have to say, that's not a site support event, just for legal reasons. <laughs> these events give everyone the chance to share VI hacks, hints and tips that you learn along the way. You'll be saying something like, oh, I tried washing my hair with body lotion today. And, and another VI person will say, oh, no, that's easy. You just put a hair bubble around the... Um, body lotion and then you can't get the two bottles mixed up they'd laugh at you first though oh yeah oh yeah that's what friends are for though isn't <laughs> exactly. it does, it does, well, <laughs> doesn't matter if you can it. see or not that's the great thing about it isn't it having that camaraderie then then the rest of the evening is not talking about being blind or the, the difficulties of stuff it's just normal conversation that anyone would have in a group yeah that's quite an important thing that is as well because um as part of a VI community, you do not want to be talking about your eye condition all the time. You just want to sit back, chill out, have a few Guinness, <laughs> you know, have a few more. listen to some live music there, or you know, even have Nicky do it, um, uh, Amy Winehouse, or what have you. <laughs> you know. Right. So now we're at the end of my journey, Jeff. It's your turn. But first, let's take a short break. Let's go into it with a final poem from you. I love this one. There is one special place I've been longing to go. A magical place all the sighted folk know. It's the one place I've dreamed I'll eventually find. But it evades me because I'm partially blind. When I get there, I'll find useful things by the score. Shopping baskets, my thing, all my friends, and the door. The ladies' ring, taxi rank, VI convention, and the girl who thinks waving will catch my attention. I'm joined in my mission, a quest that is shared with thousands of people, all visually impaired. We're seeking to find the elusive location, no braille maps or guides to give us inspiration. Determined, undaunted and bound to succeed, we'll arrive at the place that hides all that we need. The bountiful paradise around here somewhere, the mythical place that is called Over There. Welcome back to Gorilla on a Mini Moto. My name is Jeff Daniels. And I'm Nikki Durston. And we're your co-hosts. Right, let's get started. I love it when it's a breezy day and you get the breezes and you're actually just sat there with your eye closed and you, you hear the rustling of the leaves and different sounds and even smells. And that to me is music. Jeff's journey. And this is the place where I took my daughters to put to their first uh, ballet. They absolutely loved it. Me, well, it was okay. 
That's Jeff on his journey with Amy, his travelling companion. They know each other from a pub where Amy works and where Jeff has been running jamming sessions. A bit earlier, at Arnolfini, after some sighted guiding training, Amy has spotted the refreshments table. Would I like a cup of tea? I don't think we've got time for a cup of tea. I think uh, in a very short time we'll be going out and back. But Amy isn't taking no for an answer. Amy is kindly making me a lovely cup of coffee and a cup of tea for herself, I believe. And they set off, heading for Jeff's first stopping point on his journey. And as they do that, we are taking a different kind of journey to find out a bit about Jeff. Jeff is originally from Wales, the land of song. I come from a little town uh, in the lovely county of Pembrokeshire. My mother was a seamstress. My father was a re-upholsterer. We moved up to the Swansea area, a place called Athgren, uh, just outside Pontedawi, when I was approximately eight and a half, nine years of age, because my grandfather just died and uh, my father felt he needed to move back uh, to help my grandmother run the farm. The farm was a lovely place because um, I really enjoyed the animals, the horses, the pigs, the chickens, they were all over the place. And my grandmother, she loved her cats, so there was always about 12, maybe 15 cats around the place. Jeff's father was also a jockey. He himself broke in his first horse when he was eight years of age. So me having exactly the same name, it was my duty, as it was, to try and do the same thing. Which was to break in a young colt named Bolt. Dad put me on the horse, holding the horse, and then let me go, and I'd get thrown off. And it was probably, I think it was 32 times I got thrown off the horse. So Dad said, no, no, no we, we've got to break the horse in now, you know. Um, so he jumped on, and virtually within a few minutes, he'd broken the horse in. But Jeff says that was because he tired the horse out first. And that was always the joke, uh, the banter, many, many, many years on, up till, you know, up until he died. Whenever that story came out, I broke the horse in. No, I broke the horse in. So, um, you know, they're really fond memories of the farm, to be honest. Back in the city journey, Jeff and Amy have made their way over the cobbles and uneven pavements outside Arnolfini and crossed over Perro's Bridge. Jeff has been showing Amy how he uses the long cane to navigate, letting her hold it in her hand and sweep it across the cobbles, feeling the surface of the ground through the cane. That section between the Arnolfini and Perro's Bridge, there's so many different textures of pavement along there, you can really pick up a lot. Is it time we talked about canes, Jeff? Yes, let's go to the conversation we had with our friend Mark. So noticing things as you're walking, uh, from further ahead, just using the peripheral vision, I think it does, it means I can walk a bit quicker, uh, and it means that I look less blind. Here's Mark on the city journey he took with travelling companion Letty. So sometimes people just, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. And it's because I notice things all around me, using the very edges of my vision. Uh, and picking up on what could be a hazard. So when there is a potential hazard, I do slow down. And other than that, I do barrel round quite quickly, as you've probably noticed. Mark and Letty met a few months ago. 
Mark has been advising on accessibility for the new exhibition about to open at Arnolfini, where Letty works. So taking a journey together is a new experience for them both. And you notice yourself, people are moving their kids out of the way quickly. And, mm. uh, and I say, I've often heard parents talk to their kids. The kid will ask, what's he doing? What's that stick for? And the parents won't explain to them. They're almost embarrassed by it. That the kids are asking a question. Uh, and I think it's, you should always educate your children uh, if they ask questions about any disability. There are different types of cane and specific cane training. Now, so many people just don't know what to do. Uh, a lot of people freeze on the spot. And that can make it, that's a, and that can be a hazard because I'm walking straight ahead and if somebody just stops on the shoreline. Shorelining is a specific long cane technique used to follow the edge or shoreline of the travel path. So the shoreline being close to the building, then chances are I'm going to hit her ankles. So we asked Mark to talk us through the different types of cane. When I went for blind first off, I used to use a simple cane. You know, it's a small white one, normally about 70 centimetres long. Uh, the trouble is, I didn't find it was that noticed by people. Yeah, so I then went on to using uh, the guide cane. I actually did go through all phases of using a guide cane to a long cane. And a guide cane is slightly thicker than a, a symbol cane. You've probably seen it, but it's one that you tap. The long canes, which is the one with the balls on the end, they, they're called constant contact, although some people double tap. The difference between a guide cane and a long cane is a guide cane, you're, you're there using it to tap to confirm where something is, whereas a long cane, you're using it to find where things are. But the symbol cane, you'll see, I always found it too small, so I moved on to long canes. Jeff, Mark and Nicky all use long canes to navigate the city. I always found with a long cane, I wrote a blog called Moses of the High Street, First time I started using the long cane was literally just that. It was like parting the Red Seas of people. Uh, you're walking up the high street with your cane and, and it just, people move. And then there's the clues our travellers all use to find their way. We've talked about some of the, what my rehabilitation officer called primary clues. And these are things that never move. They're always there every time you come along. So the pavement textures and drain covers and lamp posts, um, all of those things never move, they're always there. So they help you to to, re to realise where you are on your route. You've also got secondary clues, and that could be, for example, if you walk past a school or a playground at a certain time of day, you can hear all the children playing, and you know, OK, I'm walking past the school. But that's only happening at a certain time of day. And the same thing can be said for walking past Greg's. So smells and sounds and textures are secondary clues that when they're available, they will help you know where you are. I've had this discussion with Nicky where A-boards... Which I see as obstacles. I actually whack the A-boards because they're my way markers. Because they're usually in the same place every day... You know, I, I actually look at a lot of things as way markers rather than obstacles. So, and everybody will have their own viewpoint on that. I'm one of those people with a cane. I, I class myself as a whacker because I really do whack my cane <laughs> from left to center. And I like it when I hit the lamppost and it r rings out. You know, it's almost like a bit of music as I'm walking down the road. Ching, bang, hit the bin, bang, hit the, <laughs> hit the bus stop, bang. You know, drunk it on the way home, eh? We're back in Jeff and Amy's journey. They have arrived at College Green, a central grassed area with paved pathways, a sprinkling of trees, and surrounded by historic and civic buildings, including the cathedral, 
which is the first stopping point Jeff has chosen to visit on his city journey. We've just been inside the cathedral for a um, bit of peace and quiet, which it always seems to have. But uh, it's quite an important point, place for me because after having to give up the job I used to do, which is an electrician, uh, moved to Bristol because I had worked up here for nine months prior to losing, having to give up driving. Jeff was diagnosed with high myopia as a child. High myopia is short-sightedness that can come with the risk of developing other eye conditions. My parents were told that the, the progression of the myopia would actually probably render me totally blind by the time I'm in my late, late teens, unless we can stop it, reverse it. To help slow down its progression, Jeff was one of the youngest ever children in Pembrokeshire to be given what's called the full eye contact lens. So it was a lot of trial and error, but you know, in due respect, it did actually stop the progression of sight loss. His sight remained problematic, with a series of retinal detachments leaving him blind in one eye at 19 and a tear on the retina needing laser treatment at the age of 27. Then at 30, um, 2nd of January, woke up and, it, it, you know, it was, I didn't really feel anything strange at that time. Just went for a walk with the dog as normal, bought the paper, got back, put the paper on the table, made a coffee, getting ready for work, sat down for the coffee, read the paper, and I realised, except for the big print, the, you know, the main, main headlights, when I l looked at anything else, it was converging and it just wasn't making sense to my brain. And um, I realised something was up. He cancelled work, arranged for his brother to drive him to the eye specialist, where he was told that the tear on his retina had opened up again. And I said, well, what can you do about it? And he said, absolutely nothing. That blind spot is going to be permanent. And he said, um, you know, you know, and it was really hard at the time because basically he just said to me, you drive, don't you? I said, yeah, it necessitates my job. The bottom line was the, the specialist at the time, he says, you, you know, you just won't be able to drive anymore. So it's like all in one day, everything came to a halt. At this time, Jeff was married with two daughters and working as an electrician. There was no way to continue with the job he had been doing. His local area's unsatisfactory rehabilitation service kept him waiting 18 months, during which time Jeff's sight deteriorated even further. So he decided to act. I had worked up in Bristol on a contract in 86-87, um, stayed in Bedminster and basically got to know Bristol. I just said it one day, let's move to Bristol. And I thought my wife was going to say no. But um, after a few conversations, we made the decision. Eight weeks later, we were living in Bristol. Back in Bristol, on our city journey, Jeff and Amy are in the same spot and in the same moment that we left them. And, uh, yeah, I went through the process of going to college up in Hereford for two years. And then back in Bristol and going to university for three years and get my HND in Business Information Systems and my BA Honours in Business Admin. But this building was where we had the big cap and gown ceremony. This was a pivotal moment in Jeff's life. 
Jeff's journey back to work was over 20 years ago now. To do that, he underwent rehabilitation training. Here's Mark again. So rehab is more along the lines of route training, um, everyday living skills in the kitchen, for example, looking at lighting, just managing around the home. They do do technology, uh, but they're not certainly, they're not trainers, as IT trainers as such. Took specialist IT courses. It was a six-week intensive course at the um, Manor House down in Torquay. So I went from never, ever using a keyboard in my life to walking out there six weeks later doing 40 words a minute, 100% accuracy, yeah? And that was the start of uh, learning all about computers and all that sort of thing. Some things have changed since then. Whereas before, perhaps there wasn't as much, or certainly the technology available was nowhere near as smart. If you look at electronic magnification systems of 15, 20 years ago, nowhere near what they are now. We would never have had a smartphone before, so you couldn't navigate your way around to new places with any kind of ease. The access to work itself, when you look at um, things like smart cameras, you can take a photograph of a print and have it read back to you. Your computers have all got voice output and input, and that technology just gives us a level playing field. When I was actually an IT trainer for the RMIB, we used to have a programme which usually lasted about six months. It It was a complete package to help somebody get back into work. And a lot of the time now, um, we can actually do that in six weeks now. It's quite phenomenal how, you know, smart technology has moved things on. Jeff also received Access to Work, a government grant scheme. And of course the Access to Work as well gives you the ability to get transport into and from work and during work. Uh, But technology-wise and equipment-wise, they do cover for most people, the entire cost of it. And I know people that have used uh, the access to work and, and gone on to achieve a great many things in, in careers. There's people that go on to sports jobs, for example. Uh, there's people that are running their own businesses now that I know of. There's uh, loads of different um, avenues you can go down. Jeff has had a diverse and successful working life since sight loss, although he's retired now. However, blind and partially sighted people are still more likely to be unemployed than the general population. But let's get back to Jeff's city journey now. I designed my city journey to go through venues I love because I wanted to show how the vibrancy of culture and live music that was now on my doorstep became a driving force in my adjustment to city life. We rejoin Jeff and Amy on their city journey, some way from where we left them. They've crossed the busy city centre gone a short distance up Colston Street and have stopped next to an imposing landmark building, part Bristol Byzantine, part copper and glass modernism, currently surrounded by building works. Right, we sat outside the Colston Hall. Now renamed the Bristol Beacon. What's important about this particular building is we've now got the new part to it. The copper and glass bit. And it is quite different coming into the new annex and the different sounds you get. And the reason I've come here is because of many, many times I've come to this venue to listen to some fantastic music, and that includes orchestras, Mavis Staples, Tommy Emmanuel. My children love, love coming here as well when they were younger, and because they actually play live music here free of charge, you can just come in for a coffee. Jeff's love of music started well before moving to Bristol, but coming to Bristol opened everything up. 
my first love of music in Bristol was actually at the Plough in Eastham. Because when I was studying at university, Friday night was let off nights. DJ Derek played there. A legendary Bristol DJ. The reggae music was awesome. I, I've always loved reggae music. It was just completely different to where he'd come from. You know, I moved to Bristol and I come from a little town called Milford Haven, which I'd spent, you know, a lot of time in. And we had one little theatre, one cinema, plenty of pubs, but very little live music. There were so many different types of music and Eastern, I, I feel, is a very vibrant area, mainly because of it is multicultural. Jeff was taking guitar lessons at the Bristol Folk House when he and some of his fellow students got an invite. We were invited to go to a session called Jamming for the Terrified, which was run by, I think it was the Orchard Theatre Group here in Bristol. It was just for six weeks, I think, altogether. Located at various pubs. We had the six weeks and then after that, you know, that part of it came to a halt. I just said, well... Okay, find a location, let's rejig the name because we're not as terrified as we were before. We call it Jamming for the Not-So-Terrified. And we're still running today. Jeff teaches guitar now. He's worked out a way of teaching other visually impaired people to play. In fact, he's teaching me. Amy and Jeff have moved on and are now standing on St Augustine's Parade. Right, our second stop is outside the Hippodrome. The city's very own West End Theatre, and the place where Jeff took his daughters to their first ballet. <laughs> ballet is not my sort of thing, but fathers, as they must, take their daughters places, even if they don't make themselves. Another young lady I came here to see was... Um, I can't remember her last name now, Vanessa. Yes, it is Vanessa May. Yeah, I, the I violinist. To, yeah, I was trying to Yeah, the sure. electronic violinist. Yeah. I love her. Yeah. The da, 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 la, da, la. Yes, there's been lots of shows you've come to here. And again, it's all about music as far as I'm concerned, and um, that's why I love this city. We've arrived at the last stop on Jeff's journey a grand church like building with elegant pillars and a great flight of steps leading up to it just off busy Park Street. Come here to listen to Mud Morganfield, the son of Muddy Waters, the great blues player and singer. St George's, one of the UK's leading concert halls and a much-loved Bristol music venue. And uh, it was absolutely brilliant. As he explained to us, he didn't know his father that well. He wasn't really brought up with his father. And the interesting story, it was only after his father died he started singing. Wow. He, he was a trucker, yeah? Going across, wow. right across America all the time. Now, after his father died, that's when he went professional. Yeah. Basically, he took over <laughs> where his father left off, in a way. A story that chimed with Jeff. Something to do with how traumatic loss can cause a person to take a new path, much as Jeff had done, taking up the challenge of his new life in Bristol. We're still at St George's, but inside, in the new, more accessible foyer, Jeff is telling Amy about another experience he had here, where a groundbreaking invention for blind musicians was being tried out. Yes, last year I went to the um, Haptic Baton uh, premiere 
where they were actually using it for the first time in the country. Oh, wow. And they had the South Korean Blind Orchestra, and you had the British Parrot... The Parrot Orchestra, based in Bristol. They are the world's only large-scale professional ensemble of disabled and non-disabled musicians. They partnered with Human Instruments, who are innovators of accessible musical instrument technology, to test out the haptic baton. And basically, each person was fitted out with devices on their wrist and their ankles. And even the blind, when the baton is being moved around by the conductor. It is designed to replicate the movement of a conductor's baton by transmitting wireless signals, communicating the precise movements of the conductor to devices worn by visually impaired musicians. Then those devices translate those signals into vibrations which enable the musicians to follow the conductor. And we actually done impromptu playing, so it's not just a set piece that they know exactly where to come in. He started playing, you know, impromptu and getting certain people to play at certain times. It's an innovation that could mean that world-class blind musicians will no longer be held back from joining world-class orchestras. Once back at Arnolfini, Amy has been sharing how much the journey has taught her about Jeff's ways of navigating the city. And Jeff has been surprised by how much he enjoyed the company of his sighted guide and the feeling of freedom it had given him. But right now, they're talking about technology and the city. If my parents were alive now, mm. right, and they saw me speaking into a watch, right, or software that's talking to me, you know, they wouldn't have perceived that. They would never have perceived what we're using today technology-wise. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? It is crazy. I know I'm tech-phobic, but I know that technology has changed a lot for visually impaired people in all sorts of ways, which is why we thought we'd hear from someone who knows their stuff on the matter. On the ground floor, hmm. just next to the front door, they, they're putting in a pop-up... Um, cafe bar in there. Oh. I think that so that was Steve Hilton on a Zoom call with Rachel and Holly, our two project directors. Steve has been working at the cutting edge of digital technologies in the city for over 20 years. Like Pico Theatre, the producers of this podcast, he is a resident of the Pervasive Media Studio, based at Bristol's Watershed, who are also supporters of the City of Threads project. I'm Steve Hilton. Um, I, I wear a sort of multitude of hats at different times. I run my own uh, business called City Global Futures. Um, I'm a fellow at the uh, University of Bristol. And I've also um, been working as a digital placemaking um, fellow, which I can tell you a bit more about. Um, I've actually been in Bristol for 20 years now. Um, I moved here to um, work for the City Council. One of the first projects Steve developed in the early 2000s was a citizens' panel that used the internet to share views and encourage discussion between people in the city. And that was really what got me interested in technology. And from there, most of the um, work that I've done since has had a flavour of 
digital um, and, and how that can bring new, new opportunities and new projects and new ideas into fruition that have some sort of value to, to the place. So we ended up working on what became called smart cities. A lot of people associate smart cities with um, efficiency and data and surveillance and um, and there's some truth in all of those things. But in Bristol, we tried to use the term to sort of um, create a different meaning. We tried to think about how cities could be smart, not because they controlled everything from a central point, but because they knew how to engage people and how to um, co-create new opportunities that meant that technology could be used in different ways in the city. And so a lot of my work has been around that experimentation. And are visually impaired people considered in this? I'm somebody who is quite severely visually impaired. I've had a visual impairment since I was born. Um, so whilst it hasn't been explicitly um, my job, if you like, to, to um, sort of focus on visual impairment, it's always been something I've had to do because, <laughs> you know, it is part of who I am. And therefore, if I'm designing something or if I'm involved in something, I have to think really hard about is, is this something that, um, you, you know, will be accessible. I think in, ter in terms of visual impairment and smart cities, there's been, um, you know, there have been bespoke projects that I've seen and, and connected with over the years. Lots to do with wayfinding, um, lot lots to do with um, trying to orientate people with visual impairments within cities. I guess few of them have achieved a sort of mainstream impact, which has been a frustration because I, I think I think you know the the, the opportunities around helping to pe people to navigate cities uh, with visual impairments are huge. I guess where I see some some light um, now is that those those ambitions are perhaps starting to become a bit more mainstream. So you have, you know, big corporates like um, Microsoft investing in apps that are specifically designed for people who are blind or visually impaired. But that doesn't mean there isn't quite a long way to go. And what is digital placemaking? Places don't, don't, just, don't just pop up without some element of design. As we walk around the city, everything that's there has been designed by somebody at some point. Often they're not designed with um, the, the needs of people with uh, disabilities or visual impairments in mind. And I guess the idea of digital placemaking is to think about how technology and connectivity plays into all that. And how do we design virtual and physical spaces that um, are more inclusive and more accessible to everybody. Through my research, we, we sort of start to explore this idea of whether we need to reclaim our maps. You know, maybe we need sort of virtual maps of Bristol designed by um, local people. Maybe um, if you have a visual impairment like I do, um, you need a different type of map. You know, I'm not really interested in a map that shows me how to drive around the city. Um, many of the landmarks that I, I see on my um, phone um, as I walk around, they don't actually, I can't see them. They don't, the things that are on my um, map that I, I, I receive on my phone are not the things that I'm stood next to. And so the sorts of map that I, I might need is very different from a, the sort of map that somebody might need who's sort of primarily interested in driving. 
And so I like that idea that digital placemaking can open up an opportunity for us to create diff different ways of presenting the city and its physicality to different people, uh, depending on, on, on who they are and what they are and what they're trying to do at any particular point. I can really relate to that. I already use a lot of tech to navigate the city. It's really exciting to think about a digital map developed with me in mind. That is brilliant, but I am being dragged kicking and screaming into the world of modern technology. I wasn't a big technology fan until I lost my sight, but it's given me a lot of independence, and that means the world. I love it when it's a breezy day, and you get the breezes and you're actually just sat there with your eye closed and you, you hear the rustling of the leaves and different sounds and even smells. And um, that to me is music. We're back with Jeff in the forest. Despite the lure of the city and the freedom he has found here and his embracing of technology, Jeff still seeks out places in nature in which to be and it's still where he feels most at home and free. A lot of the times, yes, I will bring my guitar because actually that peacefulness that I feel when I'm there actually allows me to just um, just really just play the guitar and just moving the kappa around the around the, the the fret. Got to the seventh fret, I got this sound that I really liked. You know, just sitting there, closing your eyes, and just listening to everything around you. Well, we've come to the end of our episode. I know our stories are very different, Jeff, but I think one of the things that connects them is the way our sight loss meant that we both had to deal with really big and unexpected changes. Becoming visually impaired was something I never expected would happen to me. Well, Nikki, sometimes you think you're doing one thing, then all of a sudden, life gives you a gorilla on a mini moto. And as our episode comes to a close, Perhaps some story or moment within it has struck a chord with you. Perhaps a shared experience or a new reflection. Loss can lead us all to take new paths and make unexpected connections or surprising discoveries, even to find a place and a new sense of belonging that we may not otherwise have known. We'll be handing over the baton to our fellow City of Threads teammates for the next episode. But first, we recommend you tune in to the sister episode of Gorilla on a Mini Moto. Where through the magic of immersive sound, we'll take you deeper into the heart of some of the places and moments in our journeys. So you get to experience the city in our shoes. Best listened to on headphones. To find out more about these podcasts and the people featured in this episode, you can find additional information at www.partexchangeco.com. Dot org dot uk